0: Welcome to our podcast series, Talking With Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading.
1: Welcome to season three of the Talking With Traders podcast series with me, Garth McKenzie. Backed by popular demand following the first two seasons, I'll bring you a string of interviews over the next 10 weeks with a number of seasoned traders in my network to give you a first-hand insight into how they trade the world's financial markets so successfully. The first two seasons of this podcast have had over 20,000 downloads of the interviews, so I've used this traction to seek greater global reach for the third season. A special word of thanks must go to our sponsors, IG Markets, for continuing to fund this podcast and to allow it to flourish. In Season 3 of Talking with Traders, I've gone beyond the borders of South Africa to speak to traders from across the globe. I'll ask pertinent questions of each of my guests to really try and get them to open up about what makes them consistently successful when it comes to taking on the world's financial markets. This episode of Talking With Traders is something a little bit different. Most of the guests that we record on this uh, podcast are obviously traders, but some of them have been a little bit different. Some of them have been analysts. Some of them have been more long-only managers of money. So today we've got someone quite different, and it's the finance ghost. Now, you might have seen the Finance Ghost on Twitter. If you haven't, you should be following him. It's at Finance Ghost. And this is a young and up-and-coming person in the market who tweets and shares all sorts of interesting information about financial markets. He writes in the Investor's Monthly magazine, he also runs another podcast as well called the magic markets podcast and what i really enjoy about his work is that he's it's it's interesting original content it's insightful and it's proper thought leadership stuff and when it comes to up and coming uh A young market commentators, market analysts, I think this is somebody that you've got to keep an eye on. Anthony Clark, who was interviewed on this podcast series a little while ago, originally alerted me to the finance ghost. And I've kept an eye on him on Twitter and I've managed to track him down for this podcast because I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation. As you've probably gathered from what I've said so far, I'm not going to be revealing the identity of the finance ghost. He wants to remain anonymous. He wants to remain a ghost. So we will respect that uh, and let him do the talking. So welcome to you, Mr. Finance Ghost.
0: Thank you, Garth. Great to be here.
1: It's good to have you on the podcast finally. Um, I've really been enjoying everything you put out on Twitter and all the analysis and the interesting work that you're doing. And I think that, uh, like I said in the intro, I think the the listeners to this podcast should give you a follow and keep an eye on what you're doing because there's some really great stuff there uh, in terms of market analysis, interesting company analysis, and so on. But take us back a little bit, if you will, to the beginning of your career. And can you kind of give us a little bit of insight? I know (laughs) you don't want to... Give away the ghost, as it were, uh, in terms of 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 letting us know too much about who you are. There's a there's a important reason behind that. But tell us a bit about your background, what you do, and uh, and and what path your career has followed to get to this point.
0: Sure, God, thanks. So I would say my interest in the markets definitely formed at Varsity. Um, I have this recollection of reading a campus magazine, and I think it was FM Campus. I think at one point the Financial Mail had a campus publication that used to be our sort of commerce win at the university and I used to try and get my hands on it whenever I could because I studied to be a chartered accountant and the first couple of years I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with it I kind of done it as a general business qualification and by the time we got to third year and we actually started studying finance as a subject something just completely clicked for me and I just thought man you know this is what I want to do this is so interesting this is real world stuff you know, this is really how money moves around and goes from investors into underlying assets and managed by people. It was just all so exciting. Um, and it's, it's quite a cool feeling for me now because, you know, a decade or so later, I now write for Financial Mail. So it's really cool to have come full circle. It's actually such a point of pride for me at the moment. Um, so markets, yeah, got into it in sort of 10 years ago, but really until recently, I was doing the typical young, profession, young professional stuff, buying a house, getting married, a little bit of travel as and when I could. You know, my investing was more limited to your typical kind of Satrix debit orders, that kind of thing. I don't find that particularly exciting, although I think it's an important wealth creation tool. But for me, it's about stock picking and that kind of thing that is really where the interests lie. Um, I've got a weakness for classic cars as well. So I invested in that too along the way, which I don't regret, that's actually been quite nice. Uh, but when everything crashed earlier this year, I thought, you know what, this is the opportunity now to take a view on specific stocks. You know, I saved up bonuses for a number of years, had a little bit of money on the side that I could invest. And I thought this is, this is a cool opportunity now to take everything I've learned in my professional career and actually apply it into my own portfolio. Fantastic.
1: Are you able to talk to us a little bit more with any more detail around your career to this point? And what sort of background? You told us that you're a chartered accountant by qualification, right? Um, yep. but are you able to give us a little bit more insight into where you've been along the road uh, to get to the point where you are now?
0: Yeah, absolutely so yeah as mentioned i'm a ca um the official term is i'm a cfa level three candidate as well although goodness knows that that was a few years ago of doing cfa levels one and two i don't think i'll ever finish that um i've kind of dabbled in a bunch of side gigs along the way and that distracted me from level three no regrets there it's taught me a lot of life lessons um, but i'm really glad i did levels one and two i think it's an awesome qualification even on top of the ca qualification it's a really it's a really good thing to do if you've got any interest in the markets So I did my articles outside of auditing. I won't mention where, but it taught me a lot about finance and it allowed me to rotate and work in areas that I would never otherwise have gotten access to. You know, I did like a six month stint on the trading floor. um, For example, I worked in strategy roles. I worked in these really cool environments and got to actually engage with senior employees and learn from them so much over that articles period. It was brilliant. Uh, And after that, I decided to try and go into something as technical as I could. So I spent a few years in investment banking, doing your sort of typical M&A, capital raisings, the normal corporate finance stuff. It's very long hours. Anyone who always says corporate finance people work long hours, they're not lying. It's incredibly hard work, but it's a really great experience. And again, I wouldn't change that for the world. Uh, I really learned pretty much everything I know today in that period of my life. Um, having then moved across the country, I decided to leave corporate finance. I wanted a little bit more work-life balance to actually start a family. So these days I have more of a corporate role. I get to apply my M&A skill set from time to time alongside other sort of strategic analytics and that. And then I, you know, to stay fresh in the markets and because it's such an interest of mine, I then spend a lot of my time outside of the day job basically doing the finance ghost.
1: Yeah, fantastic. So, I mean, everything you've told us is that you've got a a very high pedigree. You've well-qualified, lots of on-the-ground experience. So, you've kicked the tires of a lot of businesses. So, you know, this finance ghost is not just some um, fly-by-night entity. It's actually somebody who's got a great deal of insight into understanding companies, understanding strategies, um, understanding the accounting and how businesses work and what have you. So, it certainly does tee you up as a a very highly qualified analyst of businesses as it were. But of course, this the finance ghost is not what you do full time. Um, You do have another full time role, which we won't get into because as you said, for your own anonymity, we're not gonna talk about that. But what what was the inspiration behind the finance ghost? And what are you hoping to kind of do with it ultimately? Because I find it a really interesting concept. And I've seen a couple of other similar guys to yourself Um, who've created a profile out of some sort of anonymous Twitter handle or whatever. I I think of, for example, that guy, Stealthy Wealth, who's very uh, well known on Twitter and he writes for MoneyWeb and what have you. Now I've met him as well over the years, seen what he's doing with that. And it's very interesting to follow those of you who are doing this type of thing. So what what are you, what was the inspiration behind the finance ghost first of all, and then what are you aiming to try and achieve with it going forward?
0: Yeah. So I think in a lot of ways, I'm actually a bit of an accidental chartered accountant because I really love writing. Um, I can't stand accounting to be completely honest with you (laughs) and overly technical stuff around that. I mean, I prefer the real world business stuff and how the money actually moves and why and, and writing about that. And more recently podcasting about it. This has definitely become a love of mine as well. So I guess the inspiration behind the finance ghost is an overarching view that I think the knowledge usually reserved for institutional investors, deserves to be accessed by retail investors as well. You know, this type of knowledge, it it sounds so fancy and so sophisticated and obviously it, it comes from doing my time as you've pointed out already. But at the same time, I think a lot of what goes on in the markets can be explained simply. It doesn't have to sit in this super fancy report that uses tons of jargon, lots of big words, because it alienates the average reader. And it it means that people see the markets as something they just can't crack. They can't get into it. They can't invest. And I think that's very sad. South Africa has a terrible savings culture. We all know this. And I don't think that people find it fun or accessible to get involved in the markets. There are companies that have made it better, but it's still an issue. Um, I'm all for the guys who who teach personal finance concepts like avoiding store cards, don't take on too much debt, don't go and buy that new BMW on a 40% balloon. I get it. It's not my interest. I think it's really important though. But what happens after that? Who in the market is catering for people who actually have some money to invest, but they don't know where to start because they haven't studied this stuff. There's just, there's a bit of a void there. And I thought to myself, look, with the finance ghost, you know, I can create this playful brand. I mean, it's a purple ghost with a yellowy greeny tie. I mean, it's completely ridiculous. The website looks like you're walking through the Rio carnival. This is all on purpose because I want to come across as someone who's not this high and mighty person in a suit, because that's not me. It's not my personality. It's part of why I left investment banking, to be honest, is from a culture perspective. I just didn't really think it was a fit for me. So I wanted to share my insights in the market. I wanted to do it as an independent. I don't work in financial services anymore at all. So, you know, the anonymity is is not because I'm a sneaky portfolio manager somewhere far from it. You know, I have a a very corporate role far away from the world of financial services. And I wanted to be able to share my views without them being attached to me in that regard and and actually tell people what I think about what's going on in the market and do it in a way that is easier to understand than average. And, And hopefully I've achieved a little bit of that in the seven months I've been doing this.
1: Well, I think so. I think it's, it's remarkable what you've achieved in seven months. Um, and as I said, it was Anthony Clark who originally alerted me to you and said, you've got to keep an eye on this guy. And Anthony Clark, of course, is very well known in the financial markets in South Africa, a long time uh, rated analyst, particularly in the mid and small cap space. And he said, just keep an eye on this guy. He's, he's writing some really good stuff. He's got great insight. And he's an up, up and coming somebody to keep an eye on a rising star. So I think that's a real feather in your cap to have a, a, um, you know, such nice things said about you by, by Anthony. Um, Now he obviously also is an independent and, but he's got many, many years on you. Um, He is able to go and sort of kick the tires with a lot of the companies that he follows. He picks up the phone, he talks to management. And I think because of his reputation he's, he's well-respected and well-regarded and he gets the interviews, he gets the meetings with management at companies that he needs. Do you follow that sort of approach as well? Do you have the time to actually go and physically meet with management at companies or is the analysis that you do more um, sort of uh, just looking at the financial statements and, and just dissecting a lot of the information that is in fact already out there for everybody to see, but you just know how to dissect it in a better way?
0: Yeah, so Anthony is fantastic. I actually met him this year. I kind of knew him in a previous life from seeing him at results presentations and that kind of thing, but I'd never really spoken to him. And actually, through both of us writing for Investors Monthly, which uh, you know you you've been writing for for I think ten years, I read today. Yes. Um, you know, we kind of reached out and was like, "Listen, let's do breakfast. Let's chat." And it it was just so cool to connect with a guy like that who's got that kind of experience. Uh, it really is fantastic. And he's, he's been super helpful. He has in some ways played a mentor role over the past few months, which I'll be eternally grateful for. So he's far too kind by, about my abilities, but I'm glad he says these things. Um, and he does something very different to me. So Anthony's fantastic at uncovering the story and connecting the dots and putting together at, I suppose, investment recommendations buy-sells, hold in the small cap space and that's actually not my goal at all so although obviously in my own portfolio I take a view um, and I often share those views I'm, I'm a big believer in transparency so when I get it wrong I'm happy to say so But when I get it right I'm happy to say you know what guys I told you so Sasol was not a bad shot this year mm. and for me it's not about buy hold sell it's not about giving people my recommendation it's about teaching them to fish so I take an example of something that's happened get a, you know, a specific transaction in the market or a result released on sends or whatever it is. And I'll write an article with a specific angle, like just yesterday, Barlow World released results. And I find it interesting that they still continue to beat the drum of having a car rental business, which I think is just a horrible model in a post Uber world. Mm. And I took that and I just explained to people, look, if you want to see how Avis actually did over lockdown, it's possible to isolate second half earnings. By taking the first half and subtracting it from the full year earnings. I mean, it sounds straightforward and to anyone in the markets it is, but I can promise you that information is anything but straightforward in the greater market. And someone reads that and goes, hey, that's interesting. I want to read, I want to learn more about this. And for me, it's that light bulb moment. You know, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big fan of the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is, it basically says ignorance is bliss. So people believe they know everything when they really don't. And then they start to read stuff and go, oh, wow, that's, that's more complicated than I thought. You know, it's not quite as easy as getting a Bitcoin tip at the bri and I can go and become a billionaire in the process. And then people get into what's called that valley of despair where they go, oh, this is super hard. It's actually not easy at all. I'm going to have to really invest time in learning this stuff. And a lot of people fall away at that stage, but a lot of people don't. A lot of people say, actually, this is cool. I'm interested. I want to learn more. And those are my people. Those are the people who want to understand what's actually going on out there. They just need it explained in a way that is accessible to them. So it's actually a very different approach to Anthony. Obviously when we write for investors monthly, it's not that different. I mean, there I'm actually laying down a much more technical view of the world that does end in in more of an investment story. But uh, my writing outside of that is actually quite different. Okay. All right. Super.
1: If you get presented with a company, you know, any company what if, if you 've got ten or fifteen minutes to, to have a look through the the financials of a company, if you had to pick on a couple of metrics, what would those be when you start analyzing a company
0: sure so definitely revenue growth and quality i think that 's always a good place to start you know at the end of the day without top line you 've got nothing uh, and it 's important to know where the money' coming from so I look at. Key dependencies risk uh, geographic realities looking for important stuff in results as well little tricks like did a weak rand drive growth so you get rand hedges well of course the results are going to look great in a time when the rand is weak because the the numbers are being translated into the rand at a time where it looks fantastic you know you have to be careful of that kind of stuff and look at constant currency growth and see what's going on in the countries where it actually invested it's also good to see recurring revenue versus lumpy revenue so I'm very tuned into that from my investment banking days, where advisory fees were extremely lumpy, and uh, you had to be very careful about relying on them because they were anything but certain. So I'm I'm conscious of companies where they've got a really cool, like software as a service subscriber model. I always look at that fondly, as opposed to some of the alternatives. Mm-hmm. And then if it's industry appropriate, I look at gross profit margin. So obviously, if the gross profit margins under pressure that tells you that the industry is highly competitive and cannot easily pass its costs on. Um, you know, it's cost of sales, essentially it's input, it's input challenges. So that's something that I think is, is important. I love high margin businesses. I mean, who doesn't? Examples like Microsoft, it just gives them so much room to play as opposed to a company that has paper thin margins. Something goes wrong there and then it just gets, gets quite ugly quite quickly, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, Next step's cost management. I mean, I'm kind of, I literally just worked on the income statement. So next up would be cost management. It's, just, it's a really big thing in South Africa, especially where you've got labor, electricity, and other input costs that can so easily be above inflation. And I'm quite nervous of structures that have too much operating leverage and very thin margins. And I'm sorry to use Barlow World as an example again, but it's sort of fresh in my head from two days ago. Same story there, the margins are really thin, and those fleet and logistics businesses are very asset heavy. So when the revenues fall over, there's so much operating leverage in that structure that operating margin then just tanks completely because there's zero flexibility in the, in the cost base. You know, they can, they can retrench some people and sell off some assets, but generally speaking, they can't move quickly. So that's something that I'm nervous of in general. And then obviously all of that contributes to operating profit margin. So one of the nicest things I like to see is expanding operating margins. So positive JAWS essentially. And JAWS is really just the income growth rate minus the expense growth rate. So if yours is positive, it means that operating margin is expanding. And if it's negative, it means your expenses are growing faster than your income and you've got a problem. You're
1: listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes.
0: Once I'm finished having a look at that, you know, then then I typically go to the cash flow statement and just check that this profit actually lands in the bank. So... You know, here I'm looking for suspicious working capital moves. So sometimes you'll see this fantastic increase in operating cash, but actually you have a closer look and you realize that they changed a debtor's policy, for example, and released a lot of cash in the process, but perhaps they've hurt their revenues for later on. You know, or or there'll be some or another move in the cash flows that isn't necessarily sustainable and just have to be careful that that's not being taken into account in your model as though it'll happen forever. Mm -hmm. And balance sheet? Uh, It's important to not have too much debt. I think a lot of companies learned that lesson this year, the hard way. But also too little debt is also not great because that's not really maximizing shareholder returns. So I'm not scared of seeing debt on the balance sheet at all, but obviously you don't want to see too much of this stuff. And I stay away from anything that has an overly exotic balance sheet. Really complicated offshore funding, tons of derivatives. I've just seen that stuff go wrong too many times. So I try to stay away. And then finally, the softer stuff. Management, who are they? How long have they been around? Any weird governance issues over the past few years? And I also just go with a gut feel from press articles. I mean, you can kind of see when you've got this arrogant management problem. And that almost always ends badly. As opposed to having a bunch of managers who are a little bit more down to earth, transparent, honest about what's going on, not doing silly things with remuneration, etc., and I especially try and avoid companies that seem to trade based on a mega personality. So the best example of that globally has to be Tesla. And if Elon Musk forbid, was hit by a truck tomorrow, you really have to wonder what would happen to the Tesla share price, you know, and unfortunately, he's mortal like the rest of us, even though his fans may not think so. Mm. So I'm very careful of something like that. Yeah. And then obviously, at the end of the day, valuation, um, all of this adds together into an investment story. But if the valuation isn't adding up, then it's still not a great idea. I'm probably somewhere between a growth and value investor. I'm not afraid of higher multiples, provided they can be justified. So, you know, that's that's kind of the framework I'll use if I'm looking at a company quickly over 15 or 20 minutes in trying to arrive at a decision.
1: Yeah, that's pretty comprehensive. Thanks. Now in that, you spoke about debt and that that piqued my interest because off air, you mentioned to me that you accessed your home loan in March of this year to buy shares in the market because you felt that things had just gotten far too cheap. And of course, well, that's been a spectacular move. The market's gone up very handsomely since then. So you've more than Uh, offset your cost of funding but any typical financial planner type would tell you that that's a very bad thing to do it's far too risky now you obviously understand those risks i mean you're just talking to you i can tell you're a very smart guy you understand these you've got common sense yet you still went ahead and did that so tell us a little bit about that um, and about using that leverage to you know to access the market but you're effectively borrowing money to buy shares in the market it's something very specific to someone who's got the skill and the know how to do it, but it's not for everybody, right?
0: No, it's definitely not for everybody. I would not recommend it to a friend. The financial planners are right (laughs) (laughs) in a perfect world. You shouldn't really be borrowing money to go and buy shares. Um, You know, look, without obviously getting too personal, at the end of the day, it was a bunch of saved up bonuses. Uh, I'm a big believer in an access bond. I think it's a great tool for wealth creation. You know, you bank your bonuses when you can, you bring that cost of funding down and it gives you the ability to take advantage of opportunities when they are there. So it, it, it was money that I kind of already had and it just paid down extra into my bond. And I think that's an important distinction. And obviously my own financial situation, you know, Made it workable. So, relative job security, despite everything going on this year, um, you know, all of that, I, I was comfortable that it was all going to be okay on that front. So, on the other side, I looked at this and said, okay, from an opportunity perspective, I mean, some stocks were just so oversold. When you see a company like Sassol trading as though suddenly everyone is just going to stop using oil, you know, I just look at this and go, this is insane. Even if the share price just doubles from where it was in March. Yeah. that's a beautiful one you know that's a hundred percent return <laughs> against the cost of funding in my bond of seven yeah. percent so i distinctly remember saying to my wife who thought i was nuts but she probably was right um and she's not in the world of finance so she occasionally is this you know just voice of reason i uh, she said to me "Well, what happens if this all goes wrong and i said so look to be honest if if these stocks stay at these levels across my entire diversified basket for the next year." I think we've got much bigger problems than whether or not we took some money out the bond. I mean, everyone's going to be subsistence farming potatoes in their garden just to eat, you know, the world will literally have blown up completely. So it just felt to me like the risk of further downside was limited, but the potential for upside was significant. And I did obviously manage my risk. You know, I didn't go and play roulette and put all my money on Sassel. I went and built a portfolio of probably offhand about 15, maybe 20 stocks. Mm. And I bought a bunch of things across different sectors. I put a reasonably similar amount of money into each one. Um, you know, I bought Ultron, which was already recovering before this mess. I bought Massmart. I bought it too early, but it's actually come back to me now. And it's doing, it's doing really well. I bought BHP Billiton. I bought Bidcorp as a Rand hedge and Restaurant Recovery Play. You know, there was a bunch of stuff in there that I just thought looked too cheap. Yeah. So I think that's important. I think as much as I did something risky, no question about it. I felt like even if I got a couple of those stock picks, wrong, on the whole, I just felt there was no way that portfolio was not going to beat 7% this year. And of course it hasn't. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's smashed that and I've done really well out of it and I'm very glad I did it. Yeah. And what I didn't do, which a lot of people did at the time, was panic about the rand and move all their money offshore short, 19 bucks to the dollar. Mm. So, you know, it's, it was contrarian and anyone in investing knows that sometimes that's the right approach. Well, that's
1: right. I mean, cool heads often do win out in those chaotic type of situations. And you mentioned the RAND. I mean, it's just, it's unfortunate. It happens over and over again that when things look like they're blowing out in the country, people, the sudden, when the RANDs, you know, collapse 20 or 30% in a short space of time, people seem to then decide it's a good time to export their capital overseas. When, in fact, you should probably be doing it at a time like now where the RAND is quite nice and strong. Yeah. Um, but you talked about risk then. I just, that did kind of tee up the next question that I wanted to ask you is that how do you manage your risks in your own investment portfolio? Um, and and I guess also to that, do you trade any derivatives like CFDs or futures or anything like that? Or is everything that you do pure
0: long only equities? Yeah, so very much long only. And that's just a function of not being able to watch the market during the day. So obviously I try to keep an eye, you know, if I'm making coffee, I'll quickly log in and see what's going on. But on the whole i can't sit there and trade because of the day job so as a result anything leveraged i just stay away from and it, it may not be the case long term i mean actually one of my goals for sort of the next 12 to 18 months is to learn more about your world Goth, is uh, the world of trading it's something i, I want to actually learn more about the technicals and that kind of thing i think it'll be something great to have in my toolkit alongside the more fundamental Analysis because I think they go together. So I know some basics, but I definitely don't know 1% of what guys like, you know (laughs) Uh, And you know to manage my risk. So I'm very careful about single stock exposure um, And I also don't just take profit for the sake of it You know, I'll I'll look at it and say I'm investing in this company I've got a three-year view and I just let it let it happen if I believed in it six months ago It probably still makes sense and there's something major has changed There have been a couple of times that I've you know, just rebalanced the portfolio a little bit but you know for example on Sasol it was one of my bigger investments at the time. I think I put an equal amount into Sassel and Massmart. I figured one of the two had to fly. And it would have been very easy over time to just keep putting more and more and more into both of them, buying the dips, etc. I think I did invest a little bit more in Massmart a couple of months later because I bought Massmart too early and I was so irritated. It got down to like 21 rand a share, I think, offhand or around 20 bucks and so I bought more because I believed in the story even more strongly. But on the whole, I don't chase. So... If a specific stock is is dipping here and there if i feel like i've got enough exposure in it then i just i just let it happen you know i'd rather go and build a more diversified portfolio and go and find other stocks where i feel there's also a good chance they'll do okay but it just broadens my portfolio and as a result of that i also now hold a a number of u.s stocks there's probably 20 or 30 different u.s stocks in my portfolio and probably 10 or 15 jse stocks now with a few etf underpins And that's also one of the ways that I manage risk is I do enjoy an ETF just as part of the portfolio. It can't be my only thing because I'll get bored, frankly. But to just put money every month or, or where I'm not sure on something into a general ETF is not a bad way to go. It helps build your general equity exposure. And obviously, it just gives you a broad market, you know, diversified view on the world, which is useful. So to manage risk at the moment, I've got a lot of money in equities now. For me, I mean, not by most standards, but for me, it's a lot, and I have taken a lot out of the access bond to do it. So, if interest rates do start rising in the next twelve months and the markets do cool off, I'll go back to you know beating down that access bond. If I don't have high conviction of the stocks, I'll just let them run uh, for the next few years, and in the meantime, I'll I'll try and bring the bond back down again. You know, if. It then then builds enough in the kitty so that I can take advantage of whatever the next opportunity will be, so I kind of run my own life almost like a balanced fund, I suppose
1: yeah, yeah, a lot of fun uh, to do it and and yeah. clearly you 're very, very passionate about this. Can you tell us what an average day looks like for you because you 've got a full time job, but you 've got all this knowledge about markets and you 're clearly very passionate about markets as well, so you know, when do you find the time to do this re- this research and write and and to express your passion for the market that you
0: have? Yes, it's it's a huge challenge. Uh, Mrs. Ghost is very understanding of my craziness, luckily. (laughs) So long may that continue. Uh, There's a baby Ghost running around as well. He's under a year old. So my average day kind of sinks in with him. Um, (laughs) The days of an early morning work session or evenings between 6 and 7.30 p.m. are certainly long gone. Anyone who's had a baby will understand that. If you haven't had one, you just won't (laughs) until your day comes. Obviously, I do have a day job as we've noted, but thankfully it doesn't require much overtime. So it's very different to my corporate finance days. And I guess the corporate finance years got me into this habit of just working a lot. I mean, I probably am a workaholic and I'm very passionate about what I do and I enjoy learning. I'm not someone who sits and watches TV for two hours. It's never been me. If I watch TV for half an hour a week, it's a lot. Um, and so I spend a lot of time reading and I spend a lot of time writing. So I'll try and do an article every night, but I'm going to probably start to just pare that back a bit because I actually want to start writing less about news events and more about general areas of interest for me where I think I can do a little bit of analysis or come up with an angle that people maybe aren't reading. So that's one of the things I want to just amend going forward. And also I've had feedback from readers that they are busy and actually less is more. Now they want to rather get just a handful of articles from me a week and then every single time one comes out, they know they should be reading it. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it, it is very busy. I mean, it's writing four to five articles a week. I do two newsletters a week. Uh, you mentioned at the start of the show, I have recently launched a podcast called Magic Markets in collaboration with Mohammed Nalla, which is a big win for me because he's he's a fantastic macroeconomics analyst and he's pretty dangerous on stocks too. He, he really has such a broad knowledge. Um, he was one of the top guys at, at Ned Bank and, and has really a really strong career and history with all of this stuff. So it's, it's great to be able to do a podcast with him. And I also write for Investors Monthly, as we've mentioned. Um, I help a few other people out with writing, you know, a couple of wealth managers, writing letters to their clients, et cetera. So it is busy, but I do really enjoy the stuff. So it doesn't actually feel like work. I sometimes have to drag myself away from it to just remind myself that actually, you know, there is a life outside of this stuff. Um, and, and, and yeah, I guess an average day for me ends late. Uh, like I think I mentioned to you the other day, I am a night owl. So... You know, Once once baby's asleep and I've hung out with Mrs. Ghost for a couple of hours, you know, she toddles off to bed and, and then really I get a lot of my stuff done and end up going to bed at some abysmal hour of the night. But that's just the way I'm wired.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, listeners of this podcast won't know it, but we're recording this interview it's nearly 10 o'clock at night, your time. So yep. the, the ghost certainly is a, a night owl.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> Big time.
1: As we, as we wind down the clock towards the end of this uh, interview, I'm thoroughly enjoying it, but we've got a limited time. What two or three bits of advice would you give to yourself as a 20 year old? Let's just say you go back. I don't know how old you are now, but I mean, I I gather what mid 30s thereabouts. Yeah. Early thirties. Right. So if you, you know, go back, you're, you're now 20 years old. You're having a conversation with your 20 year old self. What advice would you give to your 20 year old self knowing what you know now?
0: Yeah, so luckily I don't really have regrets in life, which is great, it's a nice way to feel Um, and I think I did as much with the opportunities I had that I I could have done. I don't believe there's much I could have done differently. If I could think back in my post-varsity days, I should have probably traveled a bit more. I think that spending money on travel is almost always a good idea. It grows you immensely as a person and if you actually use it as a learning opportunity, then it's really some of the best money you can spend on yourself. But probably what I would tell myself is to buy Apple shares because it's quite depressing to go back to sort of 2008 and uh, work out what you could buy Apple for in dollars and then apply that to what it's worth in rands today. (laughs) I've done that exercise and it's frightening. Um, So that would be my best advice is uh, go off and buy Apple shares, take all your student money from your little student jobs and just do that and you'll be smiling in uh, 12, 13 years from now.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, if we could just find that next Apple or that next Microsoft or that next Tesla. (laughs) That's one. Yeah, that's it. Um, When it comes to this sort of stuff, are you a big reader? Do you read a lot of books about markets and investing?
0: Less about markets and investing, funnily enough, and more just about, I think, business in general. So I love biographies and case studies. I always find that the truth is more exciting than fiction. And you know, I love the story of Airbnb. one of my favorite books is Shoe Dog, which is the story of how Nike was started in a time so long before venture capitalism. You know, these days you toddle off as as someone with an MBA and you go and raise literally hundreds of millions of dollars from people who are just willing to have a punt in case you are the next Tesla. And the world was different when Nike was started, very different. Um, You know, the author Phil Knight, I think he, he was an accountant actually. So I take a lot of uh, encouragement from that and he, was working the day job very normal guy and he started selling these shoes and he had to he had to just carry on like that for a number of years this this these were the days before venture capitalism and it's great to read a book like that and actually take lessons from that about how you do need to be patient and you need to chase your dreams but you also need to be practical about it so those sort of lessons i take a lot from and i read a lot of blogs obviously magazines uh, not so much books anymore these days but there's just so much available online i mean Substack newsletters just incredible stuff out there it's so worth reading and it's quick reads and you can take a lot from it it's actually quite sad these days i don't get as much time to read books as i would like and that's one of the things i want to change next year is actually finding time in and amongst all the other craziness to actually get back into reading, back into listening to more podcasts. But yeah, I am a big reader and I believe it's, it's the most important thing anyone can do is be committed to lifelong learning. Don't stop reading, don't stop listening to things and don't stop asking questions. I think that's absolutely critical.
1: Yeah, fantastic. And last question, you piqued my interest earlier on with something you said in the interview. You said that you've got an interest in classic cars. Now, I'm yes. also a little bit of a closet petrol petrolhead. Um, I, I find my sensible brain and my petrol head desires <laughs> are often fighting against one another. So I have to ask, what kind of classic car do you have?
0: So uh, it's Italian. It's the non-Ferrari variety. Um, it's a, it's a 1969, so it's a lot older than me. Um, and I bought it just before we married actually and it was in pieces at a house and I'll never forget taking my wife to look at it because I mean I think she thought I was about to say oh this is a stupid idea why would anyone do this and instead I looked at it and said this is absolutely perfect this is the one I've been looking for so at least she knew what she was marrying because it was just before we got married she did have time at that point to change her mind and I've spent the last six years um, getting it built up into something really special and it's actually been a, it's been a great investment, not that I have any intention of ever selling it, but I'm, I'm way in the green on that thing. And yeah, I mean, I'm an absolute petrol head guard. So I share that with you, which neither of us realized before this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I try and do it in a way that doesn't break the bank, which is entirely possible. People think that, you know, buying cars is always an absolutely stupid idea. Well, not always. You can actually have a lot of fun and do it in a way that costs you no more than going and, you know, buying a new Polo. So yeah, that that is one of my other big. It's probably is my other big passion. Actually, is anything uh, car and motorsport related? Yeah, super.
1: All right. Well, I'm going to end the interview there, Mr. Finance Ghost. It's really been great fun talking to you. Thanks for making the time late at night in South Africa to speak to me. But as you said, you are a night owl, so it's fine. Um, I appreciate it, and I really do look forward to monitoring you, watching you grow, and seeing where you go with the Finance Ghost because I think it's a great concept. And I think you're onto something really brilliant there. So well done.
0: Thank you, Garth. appreciate it.
1: Take care. Cheers. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking with Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to the series by clicking the subscribe button on your favorite app. Till next time.